for this afternoon as we gather together to observe the table of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Instead of resuming my series that I had started, sporadic series, on the heart of Jesus, I decided to continue in the book of Genesis. And so I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. And we want to read together uh, verses 16 and following. But let me just say as you're turning there that after Adam and Eve sinned, God questioned them about what they had just done. And then he pronounced a curse on the serpent. And the curse, it contained a wonderful promise for the first pair. And that promise is set forth in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says to the serpent, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God promises that there will be two kingdoms, two seeds, and ultimately there will be a Messiah, a champion that will be a seed par excellence that will crush the serpent. And then God turned after this to Adam and Eve, and he let them know that as a result of their sin, there would also be consequences for them. So now he turns from the serpent to Eve and then to Adam. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Before we look at these words together, let's pray once again for the help of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that even these words that as we read them, they're discouraging to read because they tell us of the results of our sins as well as the sins of our forefather and foremother. And we confess, Lord, that all too often we have been like them. And yet we do pray that as you gave grace unto them, that you would grant grace unto us, and especially that this would come to us afresh this afternoon as we meditate upon what our Savior has done to redeem us from this curse. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, in tempting our first parents, the serpent cast doubt on the veracity of God's word. You remember God had said of the forbidden fruit, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then you remember how Satan then questioned this and said to Eve, well, you won't really die because God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. And now that the serpent's words were believed rather than God's words, and now that Adam and Eve have sinned, the question returns concerning the truthfulness of what God had said. Both of them have been eaten. And yet they haven't died yet. God said, in the day you eat, you shall die. 
And to all appearances, they're very much alive. So did God fulfill his word? Well, the answer to this question is found in what God then said to the woman and then to the man. In the words that we have just read, they show us that Adam and Eve indeed did suffer the punishment of death on the very day in which they fell. And they show us that on that day, they suffered a twofold death, and especially the first part of a twofold death. And the first was a living death, and ultimately there would be a dying death. In these words, they show us that there are consequences to sin, and these consequences are terrible. And this is true even for those who repent of their sins. And this may be seen, for instance, in the instance of David. Remember how he sinned greatly and there were terrible consequences that followed even though God forgave him. We can see this in the case of Samson. Samson, you remember, he was disobedient to God and he chased after two foreign women in contradiction to God's commandment. And yet it seemed like even though he did this, everything's going right. He's winning one victory after another over the Philistines. But then finally, as he revealed the secret of his strength to Delilah, the second woman that he chased after, he was captured by the Philistines. And then the consequences come. And they're summed up in Judges 16.21. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. And taking these words as the subject of his text, there was one preacher that preached a sermon entitled The Effects of Sin. And this fits in with our theme this afternoon, The Consequences of Sin. And here was his outline of what we read there in Judges chapter 16. First of all, the blinding effects of sin. Second point, the binding effects of sin. And thirdly, the grinding effects of sin. Sin blinds our minds, binds our slaves our wills, and then grinds us down in misery. Well, just as the effects of Samson's sin were awful, the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve were awful, even more so. And as believers, we need to remember this. When we're tempted to suppose that as believers, well, the consequences are not going to be that bad, we'll just say we're sorry, God will forgive us, and, and we'll, we'll try for a while not to be so bad. And we need to remember the history of Samson. We need to remember David. We need to remember the consequences that came to Adam and Eve. And we do well to take heart to the words of the Puritan Thomas Watson, who said, Sin is the womb of our sorrows and the grave of our comforts. In addition to providing a warning to us when we're tempted to sin, the four verses that we just read, they also provide us with what we need to make sense of the troubles that are in the world. Genesis 3 teaches us that sin renders life to be a burden. It inflicts us with great pain. It renders us abject failures. And this perspective, it conflicts radically with the secular mindset. The great Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer, he writes this, Non-Christian philosophers almost universally agree in seeing everything as normal, assuming things are as they always have been. The Christian sees things now as not the way that they always have been. And that's what we have here. And we have the instruction about how it was and how it changed. 
And with the help of Genesis 3, we understand now that we live in an abnormal world. This was not the way God first made it. And we know that sin has invaded this world. It's corrupted it so drastically that it can only be restored by a divine Savior, who is indeed God himself. And from this passage, we learn that in our fallen state, life apart from God consists of, of dying and then of death. Our nation, it's in the grips, I think, of the, of the most radical political di- division that I think most of us can even remember. And the division we need to remember as we, as we think about this situation that we're in, it's never going to be healed by a human savior. It's never going to be healed by electing the right president. In the midst of our struggles and pain, there is a lesson that this generation needs to learn. God is so cursed, you see, the life of sin and unbelief, that the rebellion of mankind, it will fail. All of his efforts to fix his problems, maybe they will help a little bit, but ultimately they will fail. God has injected a poison, you see, into our lives as fallen creatures. And his purpose in doing this is not that it might destroy us, but it's rather that he will destroy our efforts to save ourselves and that he will drive us to the only way in which we can be saved, and that is through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now here we discover that God indeed does fulfill his threats of death. But he does this in two stages. He does this, as we mentioned, first of all with a living death and then with death itself, a dying death. As the Protestant reformer Johannes Brenz put it, Adam's every death after the fall took the form of a death rattle. Indeed, he says, even though Adam lived 930 years after committing this sin, He always remained exposed during those years to a temporal death. And his bodily existence was nothing more than a continual exhaling of his last breath. So too is our life in this world no more than a meditation on death or a training exercise for death, to which we hasten with as many steps as the days, hours, and minutes of the life that we lead. Quite a graphic picture, every breath being a death rattle. That's the way it was for Adam. That's the way it is for us. And yet, as the whole book of Genesis puts it and teaches it, this passage it has a profound word of grace to us. And the fact that the death that God threatened didn't come in all of its severity at, in one fell swoop, this displays God's grace. And the curse that was pronounced on the serpent There is a gospel promise, as we've seen, and this is another manifestation of grace. And the way that the tribulations that are pictured in our text drive us back to the Savior, even this itself is a means of grace. For this passage, it sets before us five consequences of sin, and each of them teach us not only the folly of sin, but why we need to cast ourselves upon the grace of God. And in the five headings that are printed in your bulletins, I've taken my cue from the exposition of Richard Phillips. Now, we've reworked these points, but instead of strictly going by the language of the text, we're, we're, these five points are the lessons that we have one after another in this passage. And it should be noticed concerning each of these points that each of them lists a consequence of sin. And the only entities that were cursed by God, let's remember, is the serpent and the ground. 
Adam was not cursed. Eve was not cursed directly, although they had a curse that affected them. So let's look at these consequences. The first lesson we have in this passage is that sin corrupts our blessings. In the first half of verse 16, we read this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, contrary to the attitude of many women today, in ancient times, the greatest blessing that a woman could have is carrying and birthing and nurturing children. But in God's announcement of the first consequence of her sin, it was this, that this most intrinsically joyous point of her life, her highest achievement, her thing that gives her special worth in the world in a way that the man cannot contribute to, it is in this very area that she will be invaded by pain. In chapter 1 and verse 28, the man and the woman, they were given the task of begetting children. But now this high calling will become laborious and painful. And so here in chapter 3, verse 16, God says, and here I read the ESV translation, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And included, I think, in this are the hormonal changes that even predate the pregnancy. There are things that come even in the development of a young lady that are painful and difficult in adolescence. There's the difficulties along the way of of pregnancy, the fearful trial then ultimately of the actual childbirth. And the original literally reads this way, multiplying, I will multiply your pain. And this repetition, it, it shows us the intensification of this pain. God is saying that the pain that a woman will experience will be excruciating. She will give birth in agony. Different from the animals. You watch these nature shows and it just seems like they're they're giving birth. It's no more than just burping. It just happens so easily. And it's not not going to be like that for Eve and for her descendants. The kind of pain, it's not like an ordinary headache. Just take a couple pills and it goes away. And even with the help of modern medicine, the ordeal is very great. And the pain involved, it's the kind of pain that none of us as men would ever joke about. It's it's severe pain. At that very moment in life, when the woman experiences her highest sense of self-fulfillment, in that experience, she will experience agonizing pain. And furthermore, the hardships of motherhood continue long after the actual birth. And I do think that this, too, is included in what God says here. Caring for babies is exhausting work. And raising children is often emotionally exasperating. Children are a wonderful blessing from the Lord. God says that they are the heritage of the Lord. He calls them the fruit of the room as his reward in Psalm 127. But motherhood, even though it's a blessing, it's hard. And the task, it involves her, her strongest energies. And this is the reason why it's, it's usually good for, for, for it's, it's God has designed women to have children when, they're, when she's young. She couldn't take this task on when she gets old. Alasdair Payne, he writes this, one of life's most sublime joys will also cause the woman some of her deepest worries 
and sorrows. Now, our society, it rightly stresses that women make contributions in many areas other than childbearing. We don't believe that they're just birthing machines and that's it. You know, that's the only thing they're worth. That's the caricature you see of the Christian position. That's not the thing. We don't believe that. We believe that there are many ways in which they contribute to society. But in spite of all the ridiculous claims of the transgender movement, men can't get pregnant. This is the thing that women is, uh, uh, that they can do that we can't do as men. It's just, it's just a biological fact. No matter how much you try to chop things up or change things around, men don't get pregnant. Men don't give babies birth. This is something that is a unique task and unique privilege of the woman. And yet our society, it, it's turned this whole thing upside down. And while not every woman can give birth to children, according to the creation mandate of of Genesis chapter 1, childbearing remains a primary calling for the woman. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But even when God's providence allows a woman to fulfill this calling, and not all women have that providence given to them, even then she will taste the bitter fruits, you see, of the fall. Sin has not erased the blessing of having children. And it was partly through Eve, the mother of all living, that God's promise of a Savior was realized. Sin has not eradicated God's blessing on the woman. She will still have the joy of bearing children, but it won't be without pain and without many trials along the way. And God's curse on Eve's childbearing, it's mirrored by the way in which sin corrupts every other blessing that's given by God. Except we might say certain things, as long as God restrains them, spiritual blessings especially, they might be quite a, somewhat of a different category. But think about the earthly blessings that God gives you. Every one of you in this room, you've been blessed with certain talents and certain abilities. Every one of you have abilities that are unique to you. But at the same time, every one of these blessings, every one of these talents, as it's used or misused, is corrupted. It's affected by the fall, by sin. How often it is that a wonderful performance is corrupted by pride. And before that performance were many hours of sacrifice. Professional pianists, they practice eight hours a day. They get carpal tunnel in their fingers. They have to go to doctors. They get arthritis. There's many problems that are hidden behind that beautiful, amazing performance that they give to us. And yet after all of that, it's, it, it's a painful thing. And then it's spoiled by pride. And then there are other gifts that are misused. Even preaching can be the channel through which a man seeks the praises of others rather than the praise of God. Sometimes the gifts of the preacher are even used to lead people away from the truth. It shouldn't surprise us then that when God allows a man to become famous as a preacher, he sometimes will disgrace himself with a fall. God wants to cure us of the pride that comes to us or the domineering spirit or whatever it might be. And even when the labors of the preacher are largely devoted to the glory of God and the good of others, they often involve pain. And this, this pain will be experienced in their labors as well as other people's labors. Owning a home, this is a blessing to you. And this could be a wonderful thing to have that privilege. 
And yet it can be full of trials. It can be full of responsibilities that you never imagined would come upon you that complicate your life. It's one one thing after another. And even when our blessings are used for God's glory, their enjoyment are often overshadowed by all the trials that are introduced by the world of sin that we live in. And when we use these blessings for sinful purposes, their enjoyment is also spoiled by the misery of a guilty conscience. So let's remember this when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to think that it's not going to be a little, not to be trouble. It's just we're we're drawn by the pleasure we think that sin will give us. Sin gives us nothing worth having that we couldn't enjoy by sticking to the commandments of God. Well, here then is the first lesson of this passage. Sin corrupts our blessings. We need never to forget this. Sin corrupts our blessings, especially when we abuse them by sinning against God. But then in the second place, we find from these words that sin incites conflict. In verse 16, at the end of the verse, we read that God said also to the woman, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now the Hebrew word for desire, it's only found three times in the Old Testament, in this place and in two other places in the Old Testament. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 11 it is used in a decidedly romantic and a positive way. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Same word. And clearly in that place the word is used to describe the feeling of mutual attraction between two lovers. And taking this to be the meaning also in Genesis chapter 3 at verse 16, some commentators, they imagine that Eve is saying, so so to speak, well, if childbearing is going to be cursed with pain, I think I'm just going to opt out of having babies. I'm I'm just going to say, okay, I won't take that part of life. I'm just going to opt out. And so God, he he responds by creating her. You see this overriding urge that overrides, you see, that mentality to be attracted to a man. And her desire will be for him. And then before long, she has a baby. She's got the pain anyway. And experience seems to confirm this interpretation because many women are overwhelmingly preoccupied with getting a man no matter how hard they try not to be, it happens. Can't live with him, can't live without him, as the, as, the, as the proverb goes. And so some may conclude that the solution for the Christian woman is to find her identity not in, you see, a home or in the intentions of a man, but in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is one interpretation which is taken from Song of Solomon. And while this interpretation of a woman's desire for a man is true to life, I believe it is probably not the intended meaning in this particular place. And one weakness of this interpretation is the the attraction of the woman for the man. It was not something that now happens as a result of the fall. She She decides to do this. She's attracted and she wants to get out of this pain. It's an attraction that was created in her before the fall. For we read, God says, I will make him a helper for him. Genesis 2.18. Right from the beginning, she was designed to be, to have a manward orientation. But an even stronger reason for another interpretation is found in the other place in which 
this word for desire is used. And it's much closer in the Bible. It's found in the fact in the very next chapter. And so it seemed like the writer to the book of, of the book of Genesis is using the word in the same sense in both of these chapters. In chapter 4 and verse 7, God reproves Cain for his anger over God's acceptance of Abel's offering, but his rejection of Cain's offering. So Cain is all mad because God didn't receive his offering, and God reproves him. And we read here that God says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And it's, referring to sin, it's lying at the door. Its desire is for you. But you shall rule over it. In this verse, it describes sin being like an animal almost. It's crouching at the door and it wants to overpower and dominate Cain. And because his offering's been rejected, he's seething with anger. And in this emotional state, he's easy prey for this sin. Because sin is crouching lion-like, waiting to pounce on him. And in this place you see the word desire, it means that this sin wants to dominate you. It wants to control you. And not only is this instance closer in the Bible to Genesis 3.16, the next chapter, but its expression is nearly identical. In chapter 4 and verse 7, the desire of sin to dominate Cain, it needs to be overcome by something else. It needs to be overcome by Cain ruling over it. Likewise, in chapter 3 and verse 16, the desire of the woman to dominate the man is overcome by his rule over her. And she has not embraced her role of being a helper to her husband. And this happens. As Derek Kidner, he, he laments to love and to cherish, it becomes to desire to dominate. And so in response, you see, as the woman wants to dominate him, wants to usurp his God-given leadership, as response, what does the man do? He, he doesn't respond to say, well, love you here, love you, love you here. I guess you know, you're, you're the best one and I'm just going to have to lie down here. No, he doesn't do that way. He fights back. He, he, he fights for his territory. And so often he domineers her with heavy-handed leadership and maybe even tyrannical rule. And therefore, instead of the loving harmony and the loving joy that should exist in this relationship, conflict characterizes this relationship. So what God is forecasting here is that now that the fall has taken place, conflict has injected its poison into this most precious relationship of a man and a woman. Now, this doesn't mean that the principle of male leadership is a result of the fall. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Timothy 2. In both places, Paul grounds his teaching about male leadership in the order of creation. The fact that Adam was created first and then Eve. And furthermore, the fact that the woman was created to be the helper for the man. This supports male leadership in the marriage and in the church. This is the biblical teaching. We don't have time to go into all the details but it's very plain that it's set forth in the scriptures. So what's being introduced by this curse? It's not the curse of male leadership, but it's the curse of strife now in the marriage, where they're fighting for dominance, you see, the man and the woman now together in the marriage. And in this situation, both the man and the woman are at fault. This is what's assumed here in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, 16. 
And just as it's common for the woman to seek control in relationships, it's also common the common sin, you see, for the man to rule with anger and for the man to rule with self-serving heavy-handedness at times, to domineer and to respond in a, in a way that, that makes them both even more angry. Well, just as the entrance of sin into the world corrupts marriage, sin, I want you to see, it doesn't only introduce this into marriage, but it introduces conflict into every other relationship. This is what sin does. It brings conflict. Children rebelliously disrespect and disobey their parents. And so what do their parents do? They're tempted to, to be sinfully harsh or Sinfully, on the opposite hand, sinfully negligent of their, their children, just letting them do whatever they want to do. And in the workplace, employees and, and employers, there is this tension, there's conflict. The employees get careless about their work. So the boss gets unreasonable, or maybe they're reasonable, as it makes the, the, the person, the, the employee discouraged, does he want to do it anyway? And so a, con a conflict takes place in this state. There are rulers that rule, uh, rule in a tyrannical way. And in response, the people make it very difficult for the rulers to rule. And so in all these relationships, God tells us that this has been introduced now by the fall. That sin brings conflict in human relationships. And of course, this is not how God intends that we function in all these different relationships. As the Reformer John Calvin puts it, God is not here teaching us as a master or legislator, but only denouncing judgment as a judge. As a result of your sin, he's saying, you sin, this is what you went after, this is what's going to happen. And therefore, Christian wives, they mustn't use this curse on marital relationships as an excuse for nagging their husbands. And husbands mustn't use this as an excuse to abuse their wives. And this passage, it doesn't also, we should say, suggest the excuse that while marriage worked in the garden, it's never worked since. It's just, it's obsolete. We need to come up with a different plan. That's not what we should conclude from this. The solution of radical secularism is to reject marriage, and so marriage rates have precipitously fallen in our society. What's happened as a result of, of children being raised now without fathers? What's happened as a result of them being raised by gangsters instead? And they're being raised by others that will do them no good. And what's happened by them being raised by the state instead of by the parents? Because they don't have two parents that raise them up. What happens? Pillaging and robbing and killing. That's what happens. Society disintegrates. We're seeing it on our televisions night after night. We're getting what we deserve. We're getting what we plan for, as it were. Having refused to turn to God and his grace to live in accord with his word, secularists, they reject the pattern that God has set, and they reap the consequences. Well, Ephesians 5 teaches wives to submit to their husbands, and husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, a beautiful relationship. And Ephesians 6 teaches children to honor their parents, and they in turn will rule them not with tyranny and harshness, but they will rule them with graciousness and kindness and love. And so it's not God's pattern that's at the fault. It's the curse of sin that enters these relationships that destroys them all. It brings conflict in all human relationships. So if you're constantly embroiled in conflict, my friend, 
you need to take a look in the mirror of God's word and try to figure out, okay, now what am I doing wrong here? What do I need to repent of? And repent of that sin. Ask God to give you grace to, to, to do differently in your relationships with other people, whether it's in your home or at work or wherever it might be. Well, we've seen that sin corrupts blessings and sin incites conflict. But now I want you to notice with me, and we'll be a little more brief here, I think, in the third place, that sin has widespread effects. In verse 17, we read, Then Adam, then to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. Now, Adam's sin... At the very beginning, it involved his abdication of leadership. In this place, he listened to, and the phrase listened to, it's, it's an idiom, for he obeyed. He submitted to his wife as she was listening to the serpent. And in part, God's judgment, therefore, fell on Adam because in passive self-interest, he watched the temptation of his wife and he did nothing about it to object. And here we see the cosmic effects of sin. What's the result of this? As Leopold comments, man's punishment fits the the particular misdeed. So what's happened? He's not exercised the kind of rulership that he should exercise in, in a gracious way. And what's happened? Now as a result, there's the punishment that fits his that fits his, his crime. The ground is going to rebel against him. That's what he gets for it. The earth will not behave in the way that, he, that it once did while he was in the garden. Now, there are some scholars that disagree with the idea that the, that the curse has affected all of creation. And they argue that the only curses involved are, human curse, are in human relationships. But Paul teaches us very plainly in Romans chapter 8, he says, the creation was subjected to futility, and he says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He tells us that it will only be at the return of Jesus that it will be returned to its original glory. And then he says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the Bible is very plain. Because of man's sin, it affected creation. It was cosmic in its effects. Prior to the fall, Adam was told to cultivate the ground that it might produce. And he certainly would have been a successful farmer and gardener because the garden was fertile. It was a lush environment. But now it's cursed, and it begins to fight against Adam's efforts to make it produce. It's a battle his whole life. And after the fall, this resistance on the part of the ground, it spread throughout the earth. Adam's sin had cosmic consequences. Now, all sin has this tendency to extend far beyond what we think it is right now. It, 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 far beyond its original circumstances. Sin has widespread effects. The man that's addicted to alcohol, he loses moral authority over his children. And how is he going to keep them from getting involved in drugs? How is he going to keep them then from stealing to to provide for this habit? How is he going to keep them from from joining the wrong kind of a crowd? It has far-reaching effects, you see. And not only them, but the ones that they will affect. 
And fathers, if you give in the urge to lash out against your children in an abusive way, you'll get angry children as a result. You'll get vindictive adults. And you'll get, if you behave in this way, you have set in motion, you see, a cycle of abuse that will extend for generations. Husbands and wives, when you're tempted to cheat on one another, you think you're not hurting anybody. It's all in private. Know this, God has said, be sure your sins will find you out. And after it's exposed, your children, your grandchildren won't respect you. The breakup of your marriage, it'll be the event they look back upon that ruined their lives. And church members, when you're tempted to run the pastor down or run the deacons down or run the church down, whatever it might be, in the, in the presence of your children, and you got complaining children about the church, and so you validate them, showing that you're sympathetic with them, but you run it down, what's going to happen? Sooner or later, they will despise all churches, not just this church. Sooner or later, they will despise the gospel that is preached in this place and in other places where it is faithfully preached. So remember this principle that sin has far-reaching consequences. And I want to just ask you, as you think about this, do you want to share in the guilt of generations of descendants that are hostile to Christianity by the way you behave right now. Well, I've often wondered how many sinners standing before God in the last day, on the last day, will point their fingers to harsh, nasty, judgmental Christians as the excuse why they didn't believe. I wonder if that'll happen. I don't know. And yes, they will be damned on the account of their own sins. And the unfaithfulness of that Christian is no excuse and yet will it not be painful if that happens to hear that this was the initial thing that turned them off to hearing the gospel and even if this doesn't happen the last day won't it be a grief to you in this life to discover down the road that this was something that turned them off and your example is one of the main reasons why they rejected Christ because you were just judgmental and nasty so let's never forget this. Sin has far-reaching, widespread effects. Let it be something that keeps us from gauging in sin. And then now, in the fourth place, sin generates frustration. Now notice what God says at the beginning of, or actually in the middle of verse 17. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it, all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now God's curse, it doesn't remove the ability of the man to obtain food. In his mercy, he's able to provide for himself by planting uh, gardens and the like. But the curse Although it doesn't remove his ability to feed himself, it makes it very difficult. It makes our efforts to provide for our families painful even. In our earlier studies, we saw that God originally gave man work to do. And this wasn't something that came as a result of the curse, but it was in, in his pre-fallen state. But sin took that which was at first delightful, caring for that garden. And it made that work now to be dreary and backbreaking as a chore. And the word that's translated toil near the end of the uh, verse 17 in the New King James is translated pain, the ESV. 
I'm referring to the ground. God says this, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And the Hebrew word here is, used, is the same word that's used back in verse 16. I will multiply your pain in childbearing. So the woman gets pain in childbearing. And the man gets pain, you see, in providing food. For the woman, her pain is connected with bringing children into the world and caring for them after that point. But for him, with all the work that it takes to provide for his family. Now here there's a parallel between the pain of the woman and the pain of the man. For her, the sufferings that she will endure will be connected with her highest fulfillment in life. It's her capacity as a mother. And likewise, in a parallel way, for the man, this high calling that he will be the provider, this is touched also by pain. And so in one way or another, Job 7, verses 1 and 2, speaks for every breadwinner. Has not a man hard surface, service on the earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired ant? Like a slave who longs for the shadow. He's longing for the day to get over. They worked 12 hours in those days. And like the hired hand who looks for his wages. Well, our text it also tells us that this weariness and this pain, it won't be short-lived. At the end of verse 17, we read, In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In verse 19, we read, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And the longer that one labors, the more painful and wearisome the labor gets. We can't escape it. As I'm getting older now, I'm feeling it. Some of you getting older, you know what it's like. But just even sitting in my desk, I get cramps in my legs. I got to get up once in a while. This did happen years ago. And my, my physical discomfort is very small compared to those that do hard physical labor at, at, at my age. And for others, the tedium and weariness that we experience is more mental in nature. But surely whatever it is, the, the weariness and pain is greater, for obviously, for the millions of farmers that had to get behind a bucking plow and have it jerk around and have, and have to hold on to this thing and be doing that when he's 100 years old. Can you imagine what that's like, 12 hours a day doing that? The pain must have been great. They didn't have John Deere's and the like back then. One way or another, though, all of us, we experience in this condition lifelong and irrevocable pain in connection with our calling. No repentance, Nothing we can do is going to remove the curse from the ground. And then in addition to the weariness and pain of these labors, this passage plainly teaches us that sin produces frustration in man's God-given work of providing for his family. And for men whose identity is largely tied up in their work, one of the most difficult aspects of their work is its frustration. In verse 18, God says this, Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. And these words, they indicate that nature is not going to respond the way we want it to respond. We want it to grow fruit and tomatoes and the like. That's what we want. And, and we fail to achieve our goals, you see. And there, there, there's thistles that come up instead. And this curse, it's constantly experienced by those that labor to tame nature, whether it's farmers or vineyard owners or landscapers 
or, or others that, that seek to work outside and the like. No matter hard, how hard you try to eradicate these issues and how hard you try to eradicate weeds, the weeds are just like sin. I had one woman tell me years ago, sin is just like trying to pull dandelions. You've you got to get it out by the root or it's no use. And most of the time it breaks, doesn't it, before you get it out by the root. That's the way sin is. The weeds come up, they keep on coming up, and if you do get it out of the root, there's all kinds of seeds that fly around and they grow anyway. We can't, with all of our efforts, eradicate this difficulty from the earth. Martin Luther, he wrote that whenever we see these troubles, together with other thorns and thistles and weeds of our life, he says we are reminded of sin and of the wrath of God. All the fields, yes, almost the entire creation, is full of such sermons, reminding us of our sin and of God's wrath. Well, the same kind of frustration, it's experienced in thousands of other ways. I experienced just a little bit of it. You know, God has to take us as pastors and give us a little bit of this medicine as well so that we know what you go through. I had a little bit of this frustration this week in trying to fix our, sept- our, our toilet lines. Worked all afternoon, and this was prime study time that I needed for, for this sermon. But God knew I needed this experience better than those fr- hours to write more for this sermon. And it was totally frustrating. Was not able to, to cure the problem. Made it worse, in fact. Tried to take off a sleeve, joining some old pipes together, and then I tore those things up, and finally we're, we're calling in the, the experts. And so hopefully we're limping along between now and then, but, but God just gave me a little experience, you see, of what people have to do when they deal with this as plumbers. Plumbing makes me pray, and, and makes, makes me realize my limitations, and there are others, you see, that, are, that they go through this day after day. There are frustrations in their work. And even in research, there's frustrations that come. Likewise, with those of you that are computer experts, for instance, you're maybe some expert in some technical field, and maybe you don't have the back-breaking, painful labors of the farmers in that sense, but you too know what it's like to have a whole day of frustration and not being able to accomplish what you wanted to do. And by the way, pray for our, our brother Tony. He's been having months of this frustration with trying to get QuickBooks up on the ro- up online to take care of our finances as a church. Well, knowing that such frustration and pain are sure to come, it prevents us from disappointments. There's some value in seeing this. Because you see, if you begin your Christian life imagining that because you're Christian, everything's going to go smooth, everything's going to go hunky-dory, from then on you're not going to have troubles, You'll be bitterly disappointed when the thorns and the thistles begin to sprout up. And this is why these health and wealth gospels do such a disservice. They're, they're frauds. They tell you everything's going to go wonderful. God wants all of his people to go first class. Just have to have enough faith and a little money to contribute, by the way, to them. And if it doesn't go that way, the, the people get disillusioned. It doesn't happen that way. And here I also want to say something to you young people. Life is hard work. I know this is a discouraging sermon, but it's just we have to be realistic here. Life is hard work. And therefore, you need to understand in advance that there's going to be frustration and pain. And this is no excuse for laziness. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, If any man won't work, let him not eat. So don't think that you can figure out some kind of a way that you're going to get out of hard work. 
Don't think you're going to get out of some way in which all the frustrations, all the difficulties are going to be gone. If that's what you're looking for, I have one word for you. It's actually four words put together in one word. And uh, my brother had it hanging over on his wall. Put your belly aching. Need to quit complaining and realize that this is what God has called us to do. And later on we'll notice, and we'll see this more and more in the book of Genesis, grace enables us to deal with these obstacles and trials and to benefit from them. Grace leads us not to give up on on, on trying to escape the, the problems, but rather by crying out to God for this grace, he will help us to persevere in God-glorifying labors. Well, this brings me now finally and briefly to our final point, that sin is consummated in death. If a living death wasn't bad enough, God's final curse declares that a dying death will be our portion in the end. In verse 19, we read, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. There's one bumper sticker that tells the unvarnished truth. Life is hard, and then you die. There's living death, and then there's dying death. God's judgment, God's curse is completed in death. And here in this verse, Genesis 3.19, is a terrible reversal that's pictured. Man was created from the dust, and now he returns to the dust. And you will be engaged in this painful toil, God says, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And at the end, here's the, 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 the agonizing truth. It's the cursed ground that wins the victory. Man was supposed to subdue the earth, and the earth subdues him. He is then put in the ground. He comes back into his original state. From dust he came, to dust he returns, until he sadly deteriorates, until he is transformed into dust. And this wasn't God's original intention. But he threatened death, and God keeps his word. We die. And of course, the exception would be if Jesus comes back before we die. Well, I want to conclude on the note that is highlighted at the bottom of your outlines. There's grace in the midst of judgment. Thank God the Bible doesn't end with Genesis 3.19. Bless God for that. And throughout this judgment passage, God's grace makes its appearance. And while the woman will suffer, she will still bear children. While the men, they will have their trials and pain, they too will labor. They still will be able to provide. And while Adam will get his food by the sweat of his brow for 900 years, he still will be able to eat those 900 years. And we should also notice that while they will be subjected to conditions that are the result of the curse, it's interesting that God never curses Adam directly. God never curses Eve directly. He doesn't say, he says, he says, cursed will be the ground because of you. He doesn't say, cursed are you. He says, the curse will be the ground because of you. And so God doesn't directly put them forever under the curse. And this provides an opening for the gospel. Through the gospel, even in this life, 
the believer experiences a partial reversal of the curse. More and more, by God's grace, we learn to tame, as it were, the earth. We learn how to deal with conflicts in our marriages. We learn to love our wives. We learn to submit to our husbands. We learn how to love our children, how to care for them. We learn how to counteract struggles and conflicts. And under the blessing of our prayers, God is pleased often to bless our labors abundantly. And yet we mustn't remember, we must remember that this, is, this passage has given us to, to teach us that we will never, ever totally escape these trials. And all of this, it, it, it's calculated by God's grace to teach us not to put our hope and to put our zeal and everything into being successful in this life. It's going to disappoint you one way or another. He wants to teach you to be weaned from these things and the, to find grace and to find help in him in time of need. And yet we need to never imagine that we're going to just have the right Bible studies, we're going to have the right techniques that are taught to us by the spiritual gurus, and sooner or later with effort, we're going to make paradise once again. That's never going to happen, dear people. All of our efforts, all of our self-help methods of, of getting better, you see, will not enable us to totally eradicate the curse. There's only one way this curse is eradicated. It's by the one who came under that curse, even the Lord Jesus. We need a Savior who's able to counteract Adam's sin. And a wonderful clue about this is seen when the Roman soldiers placed a crown of thorns on his blessed head. And they did this to mock him and to torment him. A crown of thorns became a painful embodiment of Adam's curse. He wore that crown even on the cross that we might all remember this. It was done to mock him and to torment him. It was a painful embodiment of everything that you and I deserve. And he bore this because he came to bear our curse. And when he cried, it's finished. That curse was removed. It was paid for. And in, in principle, it, it was fully satisfied. And the pains of hell were, were poured out upon him. The wrath of God was drunk up by our Savior. And this for Jesus, in his sufferings, wearing that crown of thorns, delivers us ultimately from the thorns and the thistles that God has promised will infest the ground and infest everything that we try to do. What a wonderful plan of salvation comes as a result of this as we read the rest of the Bible and we realize how much Jesus did in order to deliver us from all these things, all these evils that we have just described during this hour. Well, may God give us grace to look to him for grace and for, for forgiveness, for mercy in time of need. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that we have indeed a Savior who has borne our curse, a Savior who wore that crown of thorns, and he wore that crown because we had brought thistles and thorns into our lives by our sins. And we do thank you that there's coming a day when not only we ourselves will be fully delivered, but also even this whole creation, the curse will be reversed. And someday it will be lush and glorious and beautiful once again. All the conflicts will be gone. 
all the struggle, all the pain, all the evil, all the hate, all the war, all the death will be gone forever. Oh, Lord Jesus, how we long for that day. Hasten that day, we do pray. And meanwhile, help us to put our trust in you, to follow in your footsteps. We pray this, O oh Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray.